All right, Bonnie's not the only one with jokes. <laughs> so this mother decided that she, was, she wanted to host a family reunion in her home. And so she invited all of her aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins, and to her surprise, every one of them said that they were coming. And so the day of the reunion, she was feverishly running around house, getting everything prepared, stressing over, getting everything clean, the table set, all the decorations up, uh, just uh, worrying over the meal and getting it all ready, and uh, her six-year-old daughter following her around the whole time. Finally, everybody arrived. They all gathered around the table, sat down for their meal, and the woman asked her daughter uh, to pray for them for the meal. And the girl said, well, I don't know what to say. And the mother said, well, you hear mommy pray all the time. Just pray what you have heard mommy pray. So the girl folds her hands and closes her eyes and bows her head and says, dear Lord, why did I invite all these people into my house? <laughs> I didn't say that in the first service. That was a treat for the choir. <laughs> or maybe a curse, I don't know. During this sermon series, Alive, we've been looking at all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Gospels. And today's reading from the end of Matthew is the penultimate appearance of the risen Christ to his disciples. If Matthew was the only Gospel that you ever read, though, you would think that this is the only appearance of the risen Christ to his disciples. Now, we've heard about Jesus appearing on the road to Emmaus on Easter afternoon and in the room behind locked doors on Easter evening. We've heard how he appeared in that same room the next week when Thomas was there and how he showed up sometime later in Galilee when the disciples were out fishing. Matthew doesn't tell any of those stories. All of those come to us from Luke and John. Matthew's gospel jumps straight from the empty tomb to a mountain in Galilee. The only other appearance of the risen Jesus that Matthew talks about prior to our reading for today is when Jesus appeared to the women as they were leaving the empty tomb. In that meeting, Jesus instructed the women, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. The next thing you know, the 11 disciples are in Galilee at this mountain to which Jesus had instructed them, and there Jesus showed himself alive to them just as he said he would. If Matthew were the only gospel you ever read, you would think that this is the first and only time that the disciples ever saw the risen Jesus with their own eyes. If that were the case, verse 17 would be a lot easier to understand. Verse 17 reads like this, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, if this is the very first time they are seeing Jesus following the resurrection, that makes perfect sense, right? They are overwhelmed at seeing him with their own eyes for the first time. They, they fall down and worship him because they now realize that he truly is the Lord. They now understand that he was right all along, that he has defeated death. In that moment, perhaps for the first time, they recognize Jesus as being truly divine. But some doubted. Of course some doubted. How could they not? They hadn't had time to process what was going on. There hadn't been opportunity for the truth to sink in. Is this really Jesus? Or are they allowing their wishful imaginations to run away with them? Is he truly alive and in the flesh? Or are they seeing a ghost? 
all kinds of doubts. Of course there would be doubts if this is the first time they were seeing him alive again. But we know from Luke and John that this is not, in fact, the first time they were seeing Jesus alive again. They have been with him already, most of them on at least three different occasions, some of them even more. All of them have been invited already in earlier encounters to touch him and to see that it truly was Jesus, that he really was alive. All of them had ample opportunity to express their doubts and have those doubts answered. They went to the mountain to which Jesus directed them, not to see him for the very first time, but to meet him again after a whole series of resurrection appearances. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some still doubted. Isn't that something? Even after all this time, even having been given so many proofs, some still doubted. Even among those who were Jesus' closest friends and followers, those he was about to commission to carry the gospel into all of the world and be leaders of the church, even among them, doubts lingered. And so it is. Doubt is a reality for all of us. We'd like to think that we can have a faith that takes us beyond all doubt, but that doesn't seem to be the case even among the disciples who had seen Jesus with their own eyes and touched Jesus with their own hands and who knew him better than anyone else, still there were some doubts. Faith does not mean believing absolutely without ever having any doubts, without asking any questions. Faith is trusting and worshiping and following Jesus despite those doubts, knowing that our understandings will always fall short, but the Lord never will. I love the fact that Matthew throws in those three little words, but some doubted. And then he moves right along in the story without dwelling on the doubts or calling the doubters out by name. It's just stated as a matter of fact, something that we can assume to be true in every gathering of believers from the time when Jesus first walked this earth right up until today. One of the things this story shows us, and several of the other resurrection stories show this as well, is the importance of community when it comes to remaining in the faith. Out of all of the resurrection stories that we've read, there's only one in which the risen Christ appeared to an individual while they were alone. That was Mary Magdalene in the garden. I said earlier in this series that Jesus also presented himself to Simon Peter sometime on that Easter Sunday, a story that is not told in any of the Gospels, but only mentioned in passing. As much as I wish the Bible told the story of that encounter, perhaps there's a reason that it doesn't. And perhaps part of the reason is so that we don't expect that same kind of individual encounter for ourselves. Because the typical pattern of the Gospel is that Jesus shows up in the gathered community. Jesus himself had said earlier, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. That doesn't mean that when you're alone, Jesus isn't there. Yes, he is there always, but he is there in a more powerful and more profound way when we gather with others in his name. 
I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Thomas received the answer to his doubts because he remained with the disciples despite those doubts. He was there with them when Jesus showed himself alive a second time. Likewise, in this story from Matthew, the 11 disciples went to that mountain in Galilee, probably with 11 different sets of expectations. They all had their own thoughts, their own ideas about what would happen there, their own beliefs about Jesus and about one another. So when Jesus showed up on that mountain, they all had a different response. Some doubted, but they all worshiped him together despite those doubts, regardless of their differing expectations and their varied assessments of one another, they all worshiped Jesus together. That's what happens when we come together as a community of faith. There are different ideas, yes. There are some doubters. But the faith of the church unites us in our worship of the Lord. In our modern, Western, individualistic culture, we have a hard time relating to the communal aspect of the gospel. We get very hung up on our individual faith, my personal beliefs, the strength of my personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying that's not important. It is very much important. But that's not the only aspect of faith that the Bible talks about. This passage doesn't talk about it nary at all. It's all about the community. It's about the church. They worshiped as a group. They were commissioned as a whole. It's the faith and witness of the church as a community that matters most here. Yes, there were doubters among them, but that didn't prevent Jesus from moving forward with all of them together. The doubters were not singled out and they were not driven away. Rather, they were enveloped by the worshiping body. They were included in the commission by Jesus. Notice that when Jesus issued what we call the Great Commission, that's how we usually refer to this passage, the Great Commission, Jesus sending the disciples out into the world to make disciples of all nations. He didn't sort the group out first, giving the commission only to the faithful few, the ones who had no doubts. He doesn't say, you doubters go stand over there while I talk privately with the faithful ones over here. He doesn't say to any of them, you need to sit this one out because you doubted while the others had faith. No, he includes them all. He sends them all out because the call and the commission is not just to a select, special, holier-than-the-rest individual. The call and commission is to the community of faith, to the church. It's to all of us, all of us who have been claimed by Jesus and baptized into his one body despite our doubts, despite our doubts. And let's face it, we all have them at times, some more than others, some maybe only in very small amounts, but none of us has a perfect faith. Perfect faith is not the requirement. It never has been. The requirement is being part of the community that has been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that is being taught and is teaching others to obey all that he has commanded. That's how Jesus defines a disciple. He tells the disciples, go out and make disciples of all nations, and then he gives them two qualifiers about how to do that, about what that means. This is what Jesus says it means to make disciples. Number one, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And number two, teach them to obey 
all that he has commanded. There are a lot of churches in which that definition of a disciple would not fly. First of all, Jesus doesn't say anything about making sure all of your beliefs are perfectly in order. Secondly, he lifts up the vital importance of our behavior, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. There are a lot of churches that teach the exact opposite of that, that it doesn't really matter how you act as long as you believe the right thing. Now, I'm not saying that right belief doesn't matter. It does. We won't be able to live rightly and teach rightly if we are deceived into all kinds of falsehood. But let's not gloss over the fact that having a perfectly worked out faith is nowhere in Jesus' definition of what makes a disciple. And Jesus completely ignores the fact that some doubts existed even within that group of 11 disciples that he was commissioning to go out and make disciples of all nations. Belief matters, yes. Faith is important. But what is even more essential is how we live out that faith. Whether we are allowing our faith to shape our actions, to mold our character, to remake us after the likeness of the one into whom we have been baptized. The grace of God poured out upon us, claiming us as his own, calling us into relationship with himself and unity with all others who he has drawn to himself immersing us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, washing over us with a righteousness that comes only from Jesus Christ. This baptism is what initiates us into the community of faith and marks us out as disciples. It's the first step. But that step alone isn't enough. For being a disciple means not just being immersed symbolically in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but allowing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to become our own, allowing it to change how we live, allowing it to define who we are, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That is how Jesus puts it. It's about being like Jesus living as he would live if he were in our body, because very truly we are in his body. That's what it means to be baptized into Christ. We become one with him. That's kind of what Jesus means by the last thing that he says to the disciples in this passage, the last verse of Matthew's gospel. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I said this is the penultimate appearance of Jesus to his disciples. He will appear to them one more time back in Jerusalem when they see him ascend into heaven. Matthew doesn't tell that story either. This meeting on a mountain in Galilee is the end of Matthew's gospel. But despite the fact that Matthew doesn't talk about the ascension of Jesus into heaven, we know that when Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age, he wasn't speaking in physical terms. He would not continue to show up in bodily form forever, as he had over the past six weeks. Those bodily appearances were coming to an end. How soon they would end, I don't think the disciples knew at that point. They might not have realized that day on the mountain that, this would, that they would only see him one more time in the flesh. But I don't think they assumed that he was going to keep showing up in the exact same way for the rest of their lives. Certainly not for the rest of the age. What he meant by, I will be with you always, was actually a lot better than that. 
before he ascended into heaven. They only had him there with them when he chose to appear. But what he promises them and us in this last verse of Matthew goes far beyond that. It's not just when he chooses to reveal himself. It's not just when they can see him and hear him and touch him that he is there. It's always, always, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a promise he makes to all of us. And it is what makes carrying out this great commission possible. If it were up to you and me to make disciples of all nations, we can't do that. I mean, we can go through the motions of baptism. We can teach the things that Jesus said. But actually making disciples, that goes well beyond our abilities. Of all nations, that's far beyond our scope. But between us and the universal church, and most importantly, the living Christ, with the living Christ in us and among us, Well, there isn't any command of Jesus that we can't carry out. We can do all things through the living Christ who strengthens us. The promise that we have from him is that when we join together to accomplish the work he has given us to do, and that's important, not the work that we want to do, not the work that what we consider to be most important, but the work that he has given us to do, that is, making disciples when we set out to do that in obedience to his command, we do not do it on our own. He is with us. He is within us. We are in him. It is the living Christ among us that causes us to carry out that great commission to make disciples of all nations. It's not because we are perfectly faithful. We're not. None of us are. It's certainly not because we have conquered every doubt. It's not our pure thoughts or our good deeds that accomplish the goal. It is the living Christ. Jesus is alive and he is with us. Always. Always. That is his promise and the foundation of our hope. Amen.